Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the ideas that shape us, and the humans behind the positions in our public conversations. Each episode, I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, and I ask them about what they hold sacred, the principles they're trying to live by, really, and what they've learned about engaging across difference. In this episode, I spoke to Krithika Varagor. Krithika is a foreign correspondent with a specialism in religion. She is The Guardian's Indonesia correspondent and contributes to The Atlantic and foreign policy, among many others. Her first book, The Call, Inside the Global Saudi Religious Project, was launched in April. We spoke about growing up in a Hindu home, being humble and doing your research when covering religion, and why it's vital that journalists take faith seriously. I really hope you enjoy listening. Krithika, we're going to kick off with... uh, enormous question about your sacred values and you can pick up that particular football and run with it in whatever direction you feel you want to. It's really just trying to open up something around your deep principles, your deep values, the things that have formed you. Um, So having had a bit of time to think about what you hold sacred, what bubbles up for you? One of the big ones is um, paying attention, the ability to pay attention and the willingness to do it. Um, I think it's always getting harder to do it, um, in our world. And I definitely, part of the reason I do my job, but just more, more so, um, my way of being in the world involves paying attention to what's going on and not being apathetic to it. Um, and I'm a journalist. So one of the reasons I love talking to people is because that value in itself is, um, is really major to me. Um, I'm also another one of my big values is adventure, um, or the sense of, um, unpredictability and embracing the possibility of it. I, one of the books I really love about this is by the philosopher Giorgio Agamben, where he kind of narrates the concept and role of adventure in Western literature and so from the you know the province all troubadours onward to the more romantic notion and I kind of subscribe to all of those notions and I don't think an adventure is just going somewhere really far or doing something dangerous but more of an attitude as to how you approach um, any episode of your life um, and another one of my major values is equality um, I feel inequality very profoundly and injustice um, and working to recognize that first of all, and then working to change that is pretty central to who I am. And it's obviously, it's always going to be Sisyphean because there's like 7 million people in the world and it's, it's always like going to be an ideal that's not reached, but I think working towards it is really important to me. I love Obviously, I love this question because I have asked it 70-odd times of a range of people, but I love the way it cuts through the sort of small talk and the immediate thing that we're reacting to right now and Mm -hmm. reminds us, just reminds us of the ways we want to live, even if we're failing to. And that, as you were talking about attention, I was thinking how easy it is for our attention to be swallowed up by um, the immediate, the urgent, the sometimes shallow sometimes important but things that we can't actually do anything about 
and kind of repeatedly putting our attention on these deeper things of the values we want to live by. I'm certainly going to try and take a spirit of adventure into the rest of my day. I think uh, an approach uh, detailed finance Zoom calls with the spirit of adventure, maybe it'll help me. Um, tell me a bit about your childhood. And sometimes it's really obvious where the links are with people's sacred values and their childhood. And sometimes it's not. Um, but t- I'd love you to just paint a picture, little Krithika growing up, what were the big ideas around, whether they were political or philosophical or religious that helped make you the woman you are today? Um, so I grew up in suburban New Jersey, which is on the East Coast of the United States. Um, my parents immigrated from India. Um, and they are Hindu. So I grew up in a culturally Hindu household. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I think the upbringing is not irrelevant. Um, and you know, for me, when I was really young, definitely the main way of interfacing with the world was through reading. I was a big reader and that in a way was the world to me. So I was kind of a typical um, egghead. Hermione Granger. <laughs> Something like that, in that way. Um, but I think I did cultivate my sensibilities through reading in books primarily. Um, but, you know, my parents were also practicing Hindus and we went to India every couple of years growing up. And um, there were a lot of temples in New Jersey and in the tri-state area, um, definitely enough for them to not feel any kind of massive juncture, I think, because immigration is obviously a huge, um, it's a huge break, but I think they were always able to find enough community to have a sense of continuity and to continue their faith, um, traditions. So on, you know, the plus side for me is that I never felt hugely conflicted about who I am either, even though I have what is sometimes called a hyphenated identity um, as an Indian American person. Um, I've always felt cognizant enough about where they came from and what culture they are referring to, that it's like not a sign without a referent. Um, So that's, I suppose, the way I grew up. Yeah. And what did it uh, in terms of practice, so there are kind of a couple of memories, particular festivals that were kind of really sort of present to you as a child. Um, you know, my parents are Tamil Brahmins, um, which is a, kind of a, a culture that has a lot of um, high holidays and a lot of pujas, which are um, like ceremonies and so on. So there were always, um, you know, there be every month or two, some occasion for my parents to get up early and do a puja and, um, you know, cook festival food and so on, whether it's like a Ganesha puja or, um, you know, around Diwali and so on. They kind of blur together a bit in my mind because there were so many of them. But I think usually for Indians in America, a holiday that ends up becoming more significant than the others, just because it's structurally um sympathetic is Diwali because it is kind of like a fall winter holiday and um in in the rubric of western religions it makes sense to have like one big fall or winter holiday yeah so that's part of my little theory as to why Diwali has grown in importance um in our culture here though I don't remember it being like a hugely big deal when I was really young is that like an equivalent of you know, my friends with mixed sort of Jewish and Christian heritage talk about Chrismica. Do, is, there, is there any kind of uh, f- similar hybrid? Um, 
Well, it doesn't come close enough to those holidays usually to combine it like that. But yeah. there was a strong encouragement, I think, in the culture because it's still a Western culture to like have a big holiday in the year that's like Christmas. So I yeah. think I I don't know if this is supported at all. I feel like Diwali has been built up a little bit for that reason. Funny. Funny, yeah. It's good. It's good to stake some space, you know, carve out some, um, carve out some space in a, in a dominant culture. And um, I have heard you speak elsewhere about the fact that you think one of the legacies that Hinduism has left you with is a sort of fatalism, and I was fascinated by that. And I'd love to just hear a bit more what you mean. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I've really internalized this belief that seems to me Hindu in affect that things will go the way that things were meant to go and um, that things are a little bit out of our hands, um, which to me is seems like a received Hindu idea because my mom definitely strongly believes it. And um, I guess it's kind of an extension of the idea of having reincarnation in many lives and this idea that like any one Thing that happens is not hugely significant. So it's not like a super teleological religion. Um, and I definitely have internalized the idea. I think it's also why I love the ancient Greeks. They are also very fatalist and there's a kind of sense that things are going to happen and it kind of takes the pressure off you a little bit. Yeah. And um, it's very, it sort of strikes me as quite in contrast to the kind of American dream, Western liberal sense of like, if we work hard enough, if we try hard enough and we're smart enough, we can fix anything, you know? Yeah, I think I think it's a useful way to to be alive under like neoliberal times because there's just I'm such an individualist on one hand um and believe in a lot of agency but you can't believe too much in agency like under like capitalism because you're against a big system. Um so I think the fatalism is like a good just like state of mind to be in and not um not take things too hard when things don't work out, whatever that might be. Yeah. Final question on Hinduism, because I know it's not, you know, primary in your identity, but I realized to my shame that you're the first person I've interviewed for this podcast, I think, who has a, a Hindu background. Um, although I've interviewed 70 odd people now, so I need to go and check that. But, um, and I think it's because particularly in the UK, there's just not much of a public narrative about Hinduism. Mm-hmm. Um, there is now quite a few members of the Conservative Party in government who are Hindu. Mm-hmm. So, which is interesting in itself, and that might be changing. But um, you'll obviously know the, the US context more and the global context, but what what are your thoughts on the way the kind of public narrative about Hinduism is presented? Is it just missing and we need more of it? Are there inaccuracies that you'd love to um, challenge? Or do you think it's just fine and it would be better for it not to be particularly in the public eye? Well, I think... Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it's more of a footnote still at this point. I mean, the population of Hindu Americans is not enormous. Um, and I think when it does make it into mainstream culture, it does tend to be very uh, through a Brahmin lens. So Brahmin is the upper, the highest caste. And I am also, you know, from that cultural background. So that's kind of a big problem because obviously upper castes are a very small percent of Hindus worldwide. Um, but if you encounter Hinduism in American pop culture, like in this um, great show that came out this summer, last summer called Never Have I Ever by Mindy Kaling. It's like everything that constitutes Hinduism in that show is clearly Brahmin. Um, So it still 
has a ways to go, I think. But I, I would honestly say majority of Americans know so little about Hinduism that they wouldn't even be able to make that distinction. So yeah. I think there could be probably a little bit more dialogue for sure. I think, um, uh, I mean, there's a really interesting movement in America called Savana, which is a progressive Hinduism. It's kind of like trying to use Hinduism as a vernacular for social justice, which I think is a very distinctive American endeavor. Um, yeah. But I don't think there's like a huge Hindu public sphere in America at all. No, I was just aware that, you know, if you if you look at the way the news has covered Hinduism in the UK in the last year or so, I just did a very brief, such as all about the rise of Hindu nationalism, nationalism in India. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll, let's talk about religion journalism because this is one of the... Um, this is one of, I think, the challenges of religion journalism is the absolute um, kind of high calling to cover where religion and politics are interacting negatively and, you know, to cover um, terrorism, to cover uh, institution, major institutional failures, you know, sex abuse scandals, that kind of thing. Um, but that, because of the role of media and shaping the public narrative, that can really strongly affect, I think, people's perceptions of religion in general and um, and particular religions, you know, like, like Hinduism, for example, if that's people's only association. So let's wind back a bit. How did you, what drew you into religion journalism? What was the thread you were pulling on? Uh, I was firstly interested in fundamentalism and extremism, um, which were kind of a major phenomenon by the time I was in adult, definitely. I grew up most of my life under the so-called war on terror, and I was seven years old when 9-11 happened. So I spent a lot of my formative years like reading about, um, definitely about Islamic fundamentalism. And I was, by the time I was starting as a journalist, um, ISIS was a major phenomenon and fascinating to a lot of people, um, I think, and definitely to me. So I was curious to, um, to live in and actually report on life in a Muslim country. And I ended up moving to the world's largest Muslim majority country um, because I just felt like I wasn't getting enough information from the frames that we'd grown up with that didn't even really make sense. Um, so I moved to Indonesia in 2016 and I started working there as a journalist. And I wasn't you know, originally interested in fundamentalism and I ended up writing quite a bit about that. But I kind of ended up broadening the lens by necessity, because to write about the news at all there, um, which I had to do in general change because I was a freelancer, meant to write about religion um, and to cover politics meant to cover religion. And as Indonesia became more democratic, it became more religious. So it became this chicken and the egg thing. And it really informed my like holistic view of why religion reporting is not a niche beat because all the stories I wrote had religion as a component, whether it was like the major story when I moved there was this blasphemy trial of a Christian governor, which was just this major clash of like Aramic religions and blasphemy seems like such an old fashioned accusation, but it was actually a really big deal. It's a really big turning point for conservative politics. And I dived right into covering that. So um, that's how I came to see religion as a lens into so many things and ended up any other kind of story I ended up doing in Indonesia because it's a very um, pious country, not in like, I don't mean a conservative country. I just mean that the majority of people are religious believers. It just came up in every story that I wrote and it just came to inform my worldview once I started reporting from other countries too. 
Yeah. Well, do you think things are changing? Because I left the BBC getting on for 10 years ago, partly out of a frustration of the way religion, I felt like, was one of the most globally relevant, interesting, vibrant things to cover. But there was such resistance um, to that view. And I know that lots of people still working in that field, particularly in the UK, still feel that frustration. Do you think things are changing? Do you think there's an understanding of the importance of this? Or does it still feel a bit like an uphill battle? Um, It's a good question. I think that as with all news, bad news is easier to cover than good news. Um, And that's definitely true of religion. And definitely a lot of the things I write about when you wrote a book about, um, you know, intolerant Wahhabism, um, there's plenty of appetite to understand in like religious fundamentalism, whether it's Hindu nationalism, Buddhist nationalism, um, Wahhabism, evangelical Christianity, those are all recognized as kind of important global and geopolitical forces. So I think it's, it's a pretty fine media environment in my experience to cover those things in terms of covering like more cultural or or feel good or slightly more neutral aspects of religious life, I think it's probably, um, it's probably still a little bit niche, but I don't have a huge lens onto the matter. So I think that people are a little bit more receptive now to hearing about religion stories than maybe when I was growing up, which was still a little bit like end of history. Yeah. Um, but I think if you want to cover religion qua religion, it's probably a little bit niche still. Yeah. Uh, You have spoken a bit about the embarrassing learning curve, the sort of necessary and important learning curve of learning to cover religion well, which I really, really valued your honesty that there is a very steep learning curve. And I know you've gone and studied uh, theology um, and you've you know, you've really spent time trying to sit with other religions, sacred texts. Why have you done that? And what have your, what's your kind of personal experience been like doing that? Um, yeah, I would definitely say like when I first started writing um, news stories from Indonesia, it was so, so easy to fall into tropes about um, conservative versus liberal or like secular posed in opposition to progressive, which obviously doesn't make sense in most of the world. Um, but just like in the incentive structure for writing a story in this many number of words and explaining the frame to this many uh, Western readers, it's so easy to frame it along those lines. And I really had to, at a certain point, and pretty fast, I realized those frames were not um, making sense from my lived experience or what I was finding at all. For example, being religious did not necessarily mean being more conservative at all in Indonesia or most of Asia. Um, It had to be described in more neutral terms and it couldn't be posed in opposition to democracy um, because it wasn't. And I I quickly learned and I think one of the good things about being a journalist is that you have a lot of um, avenues to rapidly put out work and get better at it. But you know, in this day and age, everything you write is online. So you have to be, and it's embarrassing to think like how you covered, um, this conservative movement, like this many years ago versus now you might have more nuance, but I think it's, it's okay. It's better to learn than to not learn. Cause like these kinds of stories that we tell about the world really matter. And I think imperfect or really black and white storytelling or bad frames 
especially in American media, has led to a lot of negative consequences worldwide. So, you know, it's an embarrassing thing to realize that you've internalized certain tropes and you have to get better at it. But I am pretty humble about the process. And even now, I think like some of the things I believe that I know will be proven completely wrong in the next few years. And I just want to be willing to change that. I never want to be like... um, like a dinosaur journalist who has some stuck ideas about the past. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about America's religious landscape, obviously uh, in an election year. And you've written a lot about um, Asia and the role of Islam in Indonesia, but also the way uh, your work in religion journalism around the world has made you reflect on America as, you know, the the world's largest majority Christian country, although there's obviously ways of passing um, that phrase. Having grown up in that context as someone from a Hindu family, uh, what, what's been your kind of journey with how you see the role of religion in the States and perhaps especially this year? Uh, yeah, I do. I have come to think of America as the world's largest Christian majority country, just because that is how I would always bracket Indonesia when I moved there, which is still kind of a surprising fact to a lot of people. But I think if that's one of the main ways we see Indonesia, it's like really hard to understand America today without understanding Christianity. And this is a really far-reaching phenomenon. Of course, um, Tocqueville observed very early on in the Republic that um, Americans were somehow just way more religious than you would expect Western people to be. Um, and that's how true, I think, for, for most of our country's history. Um, I guess the Judeo-Christian nature of our country wasn't super obvious to me growing up. I, you know, my earliest experience of America was during the Clinton years, which was, I think, a little bit less like moral majority politics. And, um, and, and George Bush, of course, was very religious in his own way, but it was kind of overshadowed by things like the Iraq war. And it wasn't something I spent a whole lot of time thinking about, but now as an adult, and especially someone returning to America, I think we've um, we felt the consequences much more of this decades long push from the vocal evangelical minority, which has affected a lot of um, real changes in terms of reproductive rights legislation um, and things like that. So it's been impossible to ignore because the so-called conservative turn in America and in the judiciary is very much linked to religious elements. So it's definitely something I plan to work on more going forward. I think in some ways, even though Trump is very friendly with evangelicals, he himself is barely religious. So it's kind of an interesting outlier. It's one of the many ways that he's an outlier. Yeah. Yeah. I will try and keep my thoughts to myself on that right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell me a bit about the book. It launched in April, and I know the kind of research for it probably feels like another lifetime ago because you've since been reporting on um, Black Lives Matter and all kinds of stuff in the UK and had to fly back from Indonesia because of the pandemic. But it's this really significant study of the way that Saudi involvement in Indonesia is one of the factors that has really changed the religious landscape there. So give me a couple of lines really about, um, and I know that's a terrible question to ask of someone who's written a long and detailed book, but uh, summarize for me kind of what you found and particularly if there was anything that surprised you that you changed your mind on from the start of the process to the end. Um, I'm really glad you asked me that. I changed my mind on a lot through the process of reporting it. And my book is called The Call Inside the Global Saudi Religious Project. um, And it's published by Columbia Global Reports 
in April. And it's about how, quote unquote, Saudi money and Saudi missionary activity and the Saudi campaign to spread uh, its state brand of Wahhabi Islam changed the Muslim world. And I reported it from three very different Muslim-majority countries, Indonesia, Nigeria, and Kosovo, so three countries and three continents, and all of them outside what is often constructed in the popular imagination as the Muslim world. So they're all outside the Middle East. But demographically, you know, the Muslim world is, a, is you know, 1.8 billion people and counting. So it is a really big arena. And I wanted to do justice to the scope of this global project by reporting on it this in this way. Um, so both in the West and actually in Indonesia, I heard a lot of this idea that Saudi money had somehow changed or fundamentally corrupted or irrevocably conservatized the Islamic world. Um, and it was the idea that there was, there was this dark money coming from Saudi Arabia that had fomented everything from jihadism to conservatism. And I was curious by this idea or frame, because I heard it again um, on both sides of the world, but there was vanishingly few specifics um, since ever since maybe the 9-11 report. There hadn't been there had been this just like kind of unsupported claim given in all kinds of places from presidential speeches to UN reports that like Saudi money had changed the Muslim world, but no one knew what that meant. So I went and reported on what this so-called Saudi campaign really was. And I found that it was definitely a campaign. It was a concerted effort. It started in the 1960s and continues in some way up until today. And there's a whole lot of ministries and nonprofits and people behind the effort. And it's very diverse. And uh, it is something worth thinking about in a global sense. The biggest thing that I changed my mind on that I discovered is that it's peaked. Um, its peak of influence is almost certainly over. Um, 9-11 was kind of a turning point for their ability to proselytize Wahhabi Islam in the Muslim world without scrutiny. And in more recent years, um, a steep decrease in oil revenues has meant there's not so many resources remaining for this project. So that was one of the big revelations. And I had to be open to it because at first it was, I almost was like, maybe I don't have a book to write if it's decreased so much. But I realized that the public record had definitely not reflected that state of affairs. So in fact, um, explaining how that happened and narrating it and what and how these um, Salafi communities eventually learned to stand on their own feet and they don't need active Saudi funding anymore became a big theme in my book. And it's been, I think, one of the most well-received parts of my book because a lot of people also don't know this. So being open to that fact and not trying to fit it into this frame that Saudi money was like still this dark force in the Muslim world that's controlling all of these things, um, which would have been maybe a stronger thesis on paper, but it would have been factually wrong. Um, I think keeping open to that led the book to be, you know, much better than it. I imagine when I, you know, at the time I pitched it, I did think the Saudi campaign was much bigger than it turned out to be. That is really helpful. Thank you. And certainly helps me understand the, yeah, the, cha the changing landscape. Um, I want to ask you a final question, which is really about um, what you've learned about engaging across differences. And I think that the nature of a good interviewer and the nature of 
you know, a good academic, which is also really part of what you're doing, I think, um, although I don't know if that's an insult or compliment, um, you know, you're, you're trying to um, really understand what's going on and record it, is really being able to listen and to get people to trust you. And you're obviously moving across these religious and non-religious tribes on a regular basis. So what have you learned about um, what tools or skills or habits or virtues have you developed to be able to do that, to be able to be someone who can um, cross between tribes and can build understanding rather than increasing division? Um, One thing I've learned is definitely that research helps um, in order to be your best and most open self when you're meeting someone new or meeting a new community. Um, Not that you need to drop facts or anything, but it helps if you've done the homework I find, and you, you know, I, for example, if, if you're going on a pilgrimage with this religious group, which I did last year, I went on a pilgrimage with um, Albanian Bektashi Sufis. I did a lot of reading because it was a really new context for me. I didn't know a lot about um, Bektashism at all. And there's, it's a very unique sect. And because I really literally put in library hours before I went on my trip, um, I was able to um, hang what I learned and saw and what people told me on a kind of conceptual framework. So I think that is a, a sign of, you know, of sublimating your ego and doing the research always helps. Whenever I've tried to wing it, I felt like that was being much more disrespectful of people's time. And my inclination in life is definitely to wing it. So it's something I've learned um, over time. And um, the other thing is just to, yeah, just to listen more actively and intensely and be okay with pauses and not rushing to fill silences. That's more of a technical thing, but I think if you grow comfortable with silence um, and emptiness, then, you know, either people will fill it with their own words or things will happen. They'll help you understand them. So again, I think it goes back to being open to things, both on a technical level and a conceptual level. Krithika, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. You can find previous episodes on our website. Have a look through the back catalogue and I'm sure you'll find someone that you think sounds interesting. You can also connect with us via our social channels and we always love hearing from you. So please keep sending in your suggestions for guests or improvements. If you value what we do, the best way you can support us is by sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast, especially on iTunes, because it really helps other people find it. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos, and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.